Okie doke. 44 of us in. How can we get started, right? Keep those questions coming. I'll just get us going so maybe I can inspire some questions. So let's get into it. So acing the March exam set, making the most of the remaining time. The exams are happening end of March, somewhere between, I think, the 18th and the 22nd. So we're getting close, but it may seem that we don't have much time left, right? Five weeks, five weeks, but there's actually a lot you can do to maximize this last couple of weeks um, and get that score up, get that confidence up and be ready, right? So before we jump into feedback, right? Five weeks out from the exam and feeling like there's not enough time to make a difference, but it's not too late, right? This is the tagline for this webinar. It's not too late. Don't give up. Don't say to yourself, there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to sit it and see what happens, right? You can start studying now and make a big difference. Okay, so a little bit about me. So my name is Jake. I am currently in my first year of medicine at the University of Queensland. I mean, week three, so somewhat of a way into it. I'm starting now to understand what's happening. It's a pretty complicated course, but nonetheless, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I was a Fraser student in 2022. Um, this season, last year, I was one of you guys coming in. So I remember it vividly, right? I now tutor for Fraser's because I got great success out of the course. And I've actually worked with lots of different students um, to optimize their approach. So uh, you may or may not be surprised, but there's a quite a diverse range of people that sit the exam. And as a chair, I've been able to see what works for a lot of different archetypes of students. So uh, I want to run this webinar with you guys to really give you the highest yield content, right? Personally, I sat the exam four times, right? So we'll talk about where each of those times were and my journey towards medicine. So coming out of school, I sat what was then the UMAT. It's now called the UCAT. Got a reasonably okay score, but I didn't get the then OP1 required to make it into undergraduate medicine. So from that moment on, I knew I had to sit the GAMSAT. So I signed up for a Bachelor of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Queensland with an idea that I was heading towards medicine, right? But I was thinking to myself, if I like this, that's good. But if I don't like it, then I will have discovered, you know, this is not for me. Uh, Surprise, I loved it. It was amazing. And throughout that, I sat the exam a couple of different times. So the first sitting I had was in the March of uh, 2020. Now, some of you guys may know that that was actually the May exam. So COVID hit, right? And the exam was postponed to May and was put online through ProctorU. I'm sure some of you guys have experience with ProctorU. Now, I sat that exam on zero prep. I had done a little bit of paper-based stuff, but nothing really significant. And given that it was now online, I had zero. Zero prep going into that. I hadn't written any essays. I hadn't done any practice questions. I was just saying to myself, I'm a biomed student. Someone told me I could do it. Let's get in there. So I sat that exam. And was terrified, got into the exam and went, what is this, right? Section one was alien to say the least. I had no strategy going in. I remember I got a text, um, which was a metaphor for Western capitalism from the perspective of a Eastern Bloc philosopher. And I just caved on that one. I just had no idea what's going on. 
Uh, for section two, I was a two finger pick typer. So I didn't have speed on my side and I had no planning process, no essay structure and no knowledge of what was going on around me. So that essay, I dread to think what it was. All right, I feel bad for the marker. So I came out of that and went, oh, I need to do something about this, right? Not great. So then I said, back to September we go, right? So I signed up for the second exam and started doing some self-study, right? So I went ahead and Googled online resources, free resources, YouTube, all that stuff, and sat the exam again with now the whole second year of biomed under my belt, right? So that exam went really, really good um, in terms of comparison to the first exam. I had written some essays, was still a pick typer, but I was more familiar with the exam. And we'll talk a lot about familiarity and how we can gain that quite quickly. So at that one and was better across the board, but was only comfortable, was not particularly skilled. My study wasn't very structured. I didn't know what was high yield. Uh, for example, in section three, I was very content focused. So I was reviewing all of my content for uni and thinking that that would take me through S3 just fine. Uh, it didn't, right? S3 was a different beast than I had expected. So still had work to do on S3 and S1 for sure. Uh, S2 as well, I needed to get some speed. So then third year rolled around and we hit uh, March, 2021. And in that exam, I was a newly minted third year biomed student and had done some more prep that was more targeted towards the exam. So I had an understanding of what I was meant to do. I had some other sitters telling me what was going on. I had brought up my typing speed and all of that jazz. So I got into the exam and I got a competitive score, right? Yay me, right? Very, very exciting. So then I applied in May through the GEMSAS portal, which you guys will have the pleasure of dealing with after this exam. Applied for that um, and got my interview at the University of Queensland, right? Went into that unprepared because someone told me that when they meet you, they'll love you, right? You'll hear that quite a bit. Um, people are very nice to you, but just because they like you doesn't mean that you're ready for interviews, right? That's a different story. But went into that, sat the interview, and unfortunately wasn't offered a place. So at that point, I went, okay, I need to get into high gear. So along came phrases, right? Phrases came along. I signed up for the course and said, I need to get my GAM set even higher. I need to do interview prep. I need to be ready this time. So I guess across my journey, what I learned from my four sittings was a lot about how the exam runs, but also how important prep and targeted and tailored prep is, right? So from that came this webinar, right? We're gonna talk about what I've learned in four sittings and what is now three years of working in and around the GAMSAT exam so that you guys don't have to spend all your time trying to get this information and start struggling along. Right, so that's kind of the point of this webinar. Uh, having sat that fourth exam, my score went up. I applied again, prepped for my interview and got my place in November last year. Started late January this year and I'm loving it. So you guys can definitely do it. You're definitely in the right place. And we'll talk about some of the wisdom of Gandalf on the way.
Let's have a look at the chat and Q&A. Uh, if you obtained a score during the September sitting, does that remain valid for 2024 applications? Ah, oh, great question. I know that now the exam is valid for four years. What you need to do is you need to go onto the GAMSAT website and have a look at the little table they have that tells you which year years each sitting is valid for. I will leave that question there and I'll come back at the end um, if you haven't found it and I will tell you what that is. Uh, what team's a competitive score? Yes, so I dropped the word competitive. Uh, we say 70, right? We say 70. The issue with deciding what is competitive um, exactly for each applicant is that you're all so different and diverse and year on year, the application requirements change a little bit. So when I say competitive, I don't mean that less than 70 is a lost cause. What I mean is that we are happy to say that 70, there's a good chance you get an interview. That's generally the way we think about it. Uh, what course did I sign up for? I was a comprehensive student. So coming into March last year, I started in December and went through the whole course until March. I'll just check the chat. What do you recommend? Ooh. What do you recommend on what to do when you get a question you really don't know the answer to or can't understand it? So that's a pretty complex problem. But generally speaking, if you have a text that's very hard to comprehend and one that is very difficult for you to get at and get inside of, that usually indicates that we want to see your ability to map. We want to see your ability to understand despite not knowing every word. This skill is really, really important in medicine because what you're going to get is a combination of obscure and long patient histories, as well as incomplete and sometimes complex previous medical histories. So stems like that are sometimes designed that way to see if you can still get important meaning despite lacking complete understanding. Uh, I would write a paper, and if so, how many? You get two sheets of paper one for S1 and one for S2, because they run concurrently. And then you get a fresh set of two for S3. Uh, if you get less than 70, less than 65, do you still have a chance if you have high GPA? Apply, absolutely apply, right? So we will never tell you you have no chance. We can't predict that. If you have a GPA of 6.6 .6 and a game set of 65, I could re reel off names for days of people who've gotten in this year with those scores. Right, so definitely apply. It's definitely possible. Okay, cool. Let's head forward. They've done pretty well. So understanding the principles of the exam. How do we determine what is high yield and what do we use our five weeks for? So these are the three principles of the exam and how to study for the exam. Principle one is that since the online conversion of the exam from paper, the exam has gone all in on the minimal prior knowledge model. So in previous years, especially on paper, the questions were written and the stems given in such a way that a qualified or a highly skilled um, or knowledgeable science graduate, chemist, PhD holder could do the exam off their head, right? They could go ahead and use their knowledge and get most of it through, right? Which of course was a disadvantage to those of us who didn't have that kind of knowledge. And also went against one of the principles that ASA has, which is that it needs to be a level of first year uni, right? So 
Nowadays, it's very much minimal prior knowledge. They still state that it is a first year university biology and chemistry and a senior level physics. That is still the tagline for prior knowledge. But the reality of the exam is that throughout my four sittings and the most recent sitting, the actual amount of prior knowledge that you require to solve questions purely on that is far less than that level, right? It's at what we might describe as a Khan Academy level, right? If you're familiar with Khan Academy being more practical and skills focused, that's where it's at, right? This prior knowledge that you guys may have, and you may have heard that science students do well in because of, it's mainly a comfort thing. So it's mainly related to being familiar with the exam and then having the mindset to apply skills. So principle one, it's not about prior knowledge. It's very minimal. So do not go ahead and go on textbooks, go on YouTube and you know learn all about um, metallo-organic chemistry. It's not required. Right. Uh, second principle goes on to this, which is it's skill-based. The exam is not there to test your ability in science or in, I guess, geopolitical conflict in S1. It's there to see if you have skills that are transferable to a medical context. So I've already alluded to a little bit um, the ability to deal with dense and confusing texts as it pertains to patient histories. So when you do medical school, you'll have OSCEs, and you may have patients that are deliberately convoluted and give you a lot of superfluous information or things you don't understand, right? So skills like that are, I guess, put in front of you in difficult texts to see if you could do them in medicine. Now, for study purposes, having a skill-based exam means that almost all of your study, I would say all of your study in this in the last five weeks, in fact, should be based on building the skills for the exam. When I say skills, I mean mathematical reasoning skills as an example. Can you work with algebra? Do you know your fraction rules? Can you do index laws? Can you do a bit of logarithms, right? That's your mathematical skill, right? Do you have skills in reading texts or skimming through texts, right? So that you can take a long passage and get meaning out of it without having to be there all day. Uh, other skills are related to uh, graphical analysis. So can you read a graph, which you, you will then need to do later on when you're asked in medical school to look at research and tell your convener, does this research show a significant trend? Things like that are skill-based. So it's not about what the research was on. It's about if you can read the graph, things like that. And then finally, the importance of being comfortable in the exam cannot be overstated, right? And I'd like to add on top of this that part of being comfortable in the exam is going ahead and simulating it, getting comfortable in the environment, writing essays, doing questions to time, right? So this is part of a more broad practice and reflection cycle, which we'll talk about a little bit more, right? I see a question in the chat. Uh, do we need to know calculus? If so, is a lot. So if by calculus you mean like derivatives and integration, you do not need that, right, as a rule. The only time I have seen uh, derivations or integration is conceptually. So for example, do you understand what the gradient of a graph means, 
right? You don't have to calculate the derivative to get that gradient, but if the gradient is increasing, do you know what that means? Another example, uh, do you know how to get a um, acceleration graph and make statements about velocity, right? Because displacement, velocity, and acceleration are linked by calculus, derivatives and integrations. So the question is, you don't have to be able to do it by hand and get numbers, but you should understand in those contexts, right? Where gradients of graphs come into play, right? Just, uh, so check the chat. Knowing log and exponentials can be helpful. Yes, logs and exponentials, two sides of the same coin, very, very useful to get um, into. And also a lot of great resources online. So if you guys get your log rules, get your exponential rules and just have them next to you with some practice questions, you'll pick it right back up, right? Really, really useful stuff. Okay, doke. So let's talk about what successful students do in terms of getting these principles um, to play out for them. So the first thing students are gonna do, successful students, is we're gonna understand the role that resources play and the weightage in your study plan. So what are we gonna do according to the principles? And then how are we gonna do it in terms of timing and in terms of how we're gonna implement it? So as part of the Fraser's course and study in general, Things that you might be interested in using for your study are things like mock exams. Number one at this point is simulating the exam, right? Because that hits both, well, hits all of the, the comfort, the skills, and using minimal prior knowledge. They are the highest yield thing for you guys to take at the moment. The second thing is a problem-based learning format of study. So what that entails is going ahead and doing problems, doing practice questions, but going ahead and making sure you learn from them. So reflecting on what the question asked you, what did you need to know to get it right? Were there biases? How did you interpret the question? Did you eliminate the answer options? Those kind of reflections are really important and they are the strength of the PBL format. The question bank assists both the mock exam and the PBL format. So question banks give you the opportunity to take questions um, for as long as you want, and as many as you want, and really supplement your reflection and you're becoming comfortable with the exam. There are also various um, atlases of the exam relating to either exam skills or some of the basic background knowledge you need. So one of the things that successful students do is they use efficient resources. And I can say from experience that before I came to Fraser's, when I was trying to study the minimal background content, I had to go ahead and go across the whole internet, it felt like, to get all the different skills and all the little bits of knowledge in one place. What an atlas will let you do is have it at your fingertips, right? It will stop you from spending an hour going over a skill way too far in depth, but it will also stop you from missing skills that maybe you hadn't considered. So a massive time-saving tool five weeks out from the exam. Really highly recommend finding a consolidated course. We also have tutors, right? So tutors of phrases, but also you can tutor each other, right? Having feedback from people, especially people who know the exam, is really, really helpful. So you guys can do quite a lot um, related to content and skills, but one of the things that tutors are really good at is talking about exam strategy and 
you know, what's the game plan on the day, right? So finding people who've sat the exam and who can give you information like that to make you more comfortable, that's a really useful skill. And finally, for S2 in particular, we should definitely be writing essays as part of becoming comfortable, that third principle. And we should be finding ways that we can do that systematically, right? Related to the skills-based approach of the second principle. So doing that is really great. Writing essays, writing introductions, and getting your writing up to speed, amazing. But one of the things that a lot of students miss is getting it read by someone else. Anyone who's had to try and moderate and mark their own drafts will be able to tell you that once you've read it a couple of times, you see nothing anymore, right? Your vision is fixed and set. So having someone who can mark your essays from a different perspective and ideally from a experienced perspective is that last, I guess, component of S2 practice and something that's really, really useful to expedite your improvement, right? So we have the ability to get feedback and then improve much faster. Really important stuff. Let me just address the chat before I move into some more complicated stuff. Uh, what is an atlas? So an atlas in this case is kind of like an encyclopedia, if you like, some sort of resource online or printed out that contains the consolidated or collated knowledge you need. So for example, you could have a content atlas, which would give you that minimum background knowledge without you having to look around the internet, Khan Academy, uh, look on, you know, for worksheets, uh, God forbid, read textbooks, things like that. An atlas is going to consolidate those together. A skills atlas is another type of atlas, which will consolidate things like your log laws, your index laws, your rearrangement, your graph theory into one place. So with five weeks out from the exam, one of our biggest goals is to be efficient and have complete resources. So finding an atlas is really, really um, useful for you to stop that searching. Uh, where can we find an atlas? So Phrases has a full atlas, right, in its full um, completion. We have both a skills and a knowledge atlas, uh, which I would highly recommend. But you can also get some summary sheets or kind of mini atlases on the web. So if you go have Google around, you can find an atlas on the organic chemistry skills you need. You can find an atlas on the math skills you need. They won't be all in one place and you might have to search around, but once you do get a hold of them, they're really useful. So getting hold of a free or a company provided atlas um, is a really good idea for you to have. Uh, so pretty much is an atlas a summarization of all the important content we use S3. It's not just S3. Um, we do S2 and S1 atlases. So as a whole, the atlas is meant to be your one-stop shop to get you started. All the tips, all the tricks, skills uh, for S2, some essay structures, things like that. And then on top of the atlas, you add the question-based um, study techniques, mock exams and PBLs on top of that. And then you get tutors for strategy and S2 for um, getting your essays marked. Right, so the atlas kind of forms the center. Is it just a sheet of paper in a PDF? Uh, they're not usually one sheet. Uh, they're usually um, longer than that. So the atlas we have has got lots of different sections in it. But what it does is it turns what is hundreds of pages 
on the web or in textbooks into a few pages per topic, right? So they're not just a single page. Although in saying that, you can find some one-page summaries of things like log and index laws, right? things like that. So I suppose the point I want to get across is try and find things that are GAMSAT specific and things that are compiled together, right? We want those to be um, our atlases. Okay, let's have a look. So let's talk more about uh, scores. Uh, when you say 70 is a competitive score, does that mean an average 70% raw? It does not. So when you sit the exam, you're going to get an email back from Acer with the score sheet. And you're going to get a box that says overall score. That number is the one we're talking about. And it refers to a scaled score. So I won't go into depth of how you turn your raw score into a scaled score. But suffice it to say, we measure and we apply with your overall score, the raw score is never shown, right? So we can only, um, I guess, hypothesize as to what that might be. Uh, it's definitely not 70% for a 70, right? I can tell you that. Uh, what skills are needed for physical chemistry? Okay, so that's a longer question than we have time to get into, but for things like physical chemistry, we're looking for, I suppose, simplifying and completing you know reaction mechanisms so i should say like reaction equations so stoichiometry right in terms of physical chemistry it would be nice to understand some of your um states of matter uh there's temperature involved in that there are a lot of things uh if you just go online to our atlas or to a free atlas you can find we have a physical chemistry section uh, which will go through that kind of thing but they are basic stuff more skills-based, so temperature, um, kinetic temperature going through reaction, uh, equations for stoichiometry, uh, moles, things like that, right? Pretty good stuff. Okay, I'm leaving some of those questions towards the end um, so we can talk about them when they come up. Okay, so let's talk more about now what we do in the exam, right? So we've done our practice like this, what does that translate to as a sitter? So when you're sitting in the exam, what is it that we do as successful students? So the first and I think most important thing you have to be working towards is being able to analyze without overthinking or having bias. This is especially important for S1, right? S1 is in some ways designed to see how you approach the feelings and texts of others. Are you going to be biased? Are you going to put your own feelings onto someone else? Or are you going to be a very skilled empath and you're going to be able to interpret what is said without putting your own feelings on top? Right. That also occurs for um, S3. If you have prior knowledge, bias is one of your biggest enemies. Students will find that they feel familiar with the content as a previous science sitter, but they get it wrong because they fail to read the STEM, right? They think they know it all. They're biased towards overestimating their ability. So really, really important. If you're a science sitter, consider bias, right? Ooh. The second thing that we're going to do as a sitter is we've learned to identify important information and quote, quote, map STEMs effectively. So we've talked about this quite a lot already, but it's this idea that ACE is going to give you, especially now, very long and sometimes 
obtuse and dense texts with the goal to see how you handle them. And what they're actually looking to see you do is identify what's important in kind of a sea of text and to map where that information is and how arguments or ideas are extended to then ask you, you know, what was the overall message of this passage? Things like that, testing your ability to get the main point out of a big text dump. Really, really important. Also important in our answer options. One of the things that um, a lot of students hate is when they get a question wrong because they missed which of these is not, right? Not an answer. Which of these could occur versus will occur? So being very um, uh, specific and attuned to the words in front of you is a big skill. And that leads on to our third point, which is indicator words. So indicator words are what I've been explaining in terms of which is not, could, must, things like that. Paying attention to things like that, that tell you the weight of evidence you have to apply. And also maybe where you might want to look back in the stem. So you might get a question, for example, that's asking you about how angiosperms reproduce, right? That's a plant type. If you did your mapping and you paid attention to the indicator word of reproduction in angiosperms, right? You can then go straight back to the stem and know exactly where to look. So this mapping and indicator word, I guess, partnership makes up a lot of your strategic approach to S1 and S3. And the final thing that we do is we eliminate answer options to reduce choice paralysis. Really, really important, right? So we have four answer options. And if we leave all four there, we're going to be like, which one do I choose? They all look kind of good. So we want to remove that temptation by eliminating down the chain, right? Those are the four big skills of successful students, right, that we're looking to get to. Let me check out the chat. Okay, more Atlas stuff. So, sorry, I missed this. Last thing, should we use the Atlas by constantly revising it and learning the content from there? Uh, I wouldn't say constantly revising it. Uh, the way the Atlas is meant to function is that it fills in some knowledge gaps and it tells you what skills you should practice. But then you'll go ahead and actually do that practice. The Atlas is not the end point. It's only the start, right? Uh, read over it, uh, but don't try to memorize. No, we're not memorizing. So stuff that we're going to teach you guys about, um, I guess, biology related to DNA, right? It would be important that you guys understand five prime and three prime on DNA. You understand what a base pair is, things like that. So they're not content that you then are going to go into an exam or the GAMSAT and regurgitate, but they're things that are going to enable you to access the skills required. So the exam will require a little bit of knowledge in terms of saying like how many base pairs are in the gene for insulin, right? Now that's a skill of graphical analysis, right? So maybe there's a picture or a graph of um, the insulin DNA, or maybe there's an equation that you can use. But if you don't know what a base pair is and it's not explained to you, that's a limiting piece of knowledge. I hope you can appreciate not important other than 
understanding what it means, right? Not what's being assessed. It's just allowing you to go forward, right? Cool. Okay, let me address the Q&A. Uh, what are indicator words? So indicator words are things in questions, but sometimes answer options that tip you off to either how you're meant to answer or where you're meant to go to find the answer. So words like, which is not an option, indicate to you that you're looking for a false statement. Words like, which of these could be the case, indicate to you that you're allowed to make some, um, you're allowed to have some wiggle room in what might be possible, as opposed to which of these will happen in which you have to have direct evidence if it will happen or not. In answer options are things like higher or lower, right? Indicated relationship, uh, things that are, you know, capitalized can be things that, you know, are proper nouns that indicate that it refers to a particular personal thing in the text, things like that. So they are words that give meaning to your strategy, right? If I had to describe them. Uh, can we highlight indicated words on the exam? I would just be doing it on paper, but I'm sure how to do it on a computer. So you are unable to highlight um, in like yellow or in a color on the exam. Uh, they will highlight things like referring to line 15. They will highlight line 15 for you. So things like that will be highlighted, but all other indicator words will not. So you'll have to find a strategy, whether that's paper or whether that is, you know, in your mind being systematic to keep a hold of those, right? Uh, do I recommend reading the S1 text word for word or skimming over it, then going to questions? That's somewhat personal. Uh, reading word for word can be good for understanding and it can ensure that you get everything out of the text, but it can also be a waste of time if skimming and looking for important information would have been enough. So in my experience and when I tell my students, uh, the best way I've seen it done is when we do a bit of a skim, right? We don't actually get into the weeds of the text. We keep somewhat detached so that we are still finding important information, not getting lost in um, specifics. Really, really useful for things like philosophy. So I've studied a little bit of philosophy in biomed, but I certainly can't, you know, break down theory of consciousness if it was given to me. So if I was to read that word for word, I would be enticed to get lost in that rabbit hole. So I would keep myself more skimming, right? It's not a skim in terms of, I guess, not reading and missing things, but it's a skim in the sense of glossing over words you don't understand and just aiming for meaning. Good stuff. Uh, will a recording of this be available to you? Great question. Let me see if I have a response from the team. Nothing as yet. I will find out before we get to that. What are your thoughts on skimming questions that are hard? Uh, is there something that tells you it's time to move on from a question? Uh, great thing to talk about. So just because something looks hard doesn't mean it is. So part of your strategy in these last five weeks will be to start figuring out when a question is just scary and when it's actually cognitively demanding. I would say as a rule, scary looking stems are done that way to see if you will shy away from complexity, right? The exam and the examiners would like to see that you'll dive in and then realize, oh, actually this isn't too bad. So when it comes to skipping questions because they're hard, 
make sure you're skipping because you have another question in mind or because you've spent too long, things like that. So not just because it's hard. Uh, okay, I have heard teachers say a lot to cross off multiple choice questions that are wrong, but we can't do this in the exam, can we? You can't do it on the screen, but on my piece of paper, I do a grid where I have um, A, B, C, and D um, down the, so my paper is um, landscape. I have A, B, C, and D on the side. And then when I do elimination, I write, you know, ticks and crosses, crosses down that page. And that's how I do my elimination on my paper. Okay. Uh, let me start from the top. How do you approach your study for section one? Very interesting to think about because section one is not something that you can get content for as say as per se, right? It's a exam that looks especially at bias and soft skills, right? So in terms of studying for it, it's the same as S3. It's mock exams, it's questions, it's feedback from yourself and reflection, as well as from other citizen tutors. And it's just continuing that to find strategies and to identify weaknesses. So personally, the best thing for me in S1 was to change my thought process from this is a humanities section and I'm not a humanities student to this is a skill section in soft skills and I have those, right? Or I can develop those, right? So mechanistically, it's no different to S3. But in terms of mindset, as a science student myself, that's the biggest hurdle. If you are a humanities student, you may feel that over S3 and I extend that advice to you as well. Uh, do you have any strategies for double negatives? I usually turn them into, I guess, a, a positive on my page. So I have some, I guess, scribbles or shorthands that go on my page that let me know that that's what's happening. So if I'm answering a question, I will write down, sometimes it's the whole question, depending on how short it is, reworded so that the double negative is gone, right? Something that you can have a look at doing and see if it's worth the time. For me, when the question is short, um, I found it does get me a couple extra marks, which can be important. Uh, any advice for section two? Uh, please write essays and I don't mean, and get them read. Get someone to read your essays and please write them. Uh, not writing the, not writing essays and thinking I did it in school or I did it in uni. Uh, it's, it's false, right? In school and in uni, you guys will have been used to, I would imagine, two-week, three-week deadline essays, which is not what the exam is about, right? It's really not. You need to be writing in the 30-minute time frame. You need to be getting a structure. So do the same thing every time. How are you going to take the comments? Make a plan. And how are you going to take the plan and make a structured essay? So my number one tip, Please write essays and please make a strategy and get them read. Good stuff. Uh, are pens provided? Uh, they might be, but please don't rely on that. Bring your own. You're asked to bring particular pieces of stationery. Please don't forget. Uh, can you flick forward and back between pages? You can flick back and forward. So 
you get um, on the top a little drag down. You drag that down and you have all the questions lined up in a row. And you can just go back between questions as you like. That's perfectly fair. And I definitely do that. So I go through every question and find the ones I like. And then I go back and do them in whatever order I decide. Uh, is there reading time? Uh, there is reading time for... No, no, there is not. It's integrated reading time. So what I mean by that is that it's not like a uni exam where they will tell you read and write nothing, right? What they do is that, for example, in your S2, um, you'll have 65 minutes to write two essays. That five minutes is reading time, but it's just lumped in with working time. So that's up to you whether you wish to make it just reading or whether you want to start right away. I would recommend that you don't start writing your essay right away, have a plan, but you can start writing on paper and in your um, text box as soon as you like. Uh, what is a good score percentage or study score wise for section one? 70. That's all I can say to you. It's really difficult to say exactly. Some people get you know, mid 60s, 70, some people get 80s, right? Crazy. So we're looking to do as the best we can, aiming for 70. That's what I'm going to say every time. Uh, is it possible to make notes on the screen? No, it is not. It's all on your um, paper in front of you or your whiteboard. Uh, for S2, should we get keywords from each quote then get a general theme? That's a great way to start, right? We call that thematic engagement or finding the theme. Great way to start, right? But there are others. So I recommend talking to each other, looking on the internet and trying a couple of different strategies to turn the quotes into a plan. Ah, uh, here's an important question. Can you go back and forth through S1, S2, and S3? No. So you will walk into the exam and you will do S1. You'll then be logged out and locked out of S1 before starting S2 immediately after. You will then finish, get logged out and locked out of S2, lunch, back to S, back inside, S3, finish, logged out, locked out. So you cannot go between sections. Uh, for each question, should we rush and just do it as soon as you can? How can you plan your time? Do not rush. So you get an average of two minutes a question, but in reality, that turns into a minute for a question you're good at and then three minutes for a question that's more difficult. So you have to be quick. Part of the exam is to see if you can make quick decisions and get quick comprehension but do not rush, be systematic, give yourself the time, right? The exam allows approximately two minutes in reality varies per question. Okay, let's move on because I'm conscious that we have answered lots of questions and we may not go over time. So let's talk about now um, customer study plans based on your archetype, right? So let's talk a little bit about some smaller um, tips for each type. So say you are a mature student or a student that's been out of the system for a while and you've forgotten lots of school and undergrad topics. So for yourself, getting back up to speed is really important for you. So things like atlases and things like, uh, like high yield tutorials on log laws and index laws should be the mainstay of your beginning approach. You need to get those skills back and get your head kind of back in the game before you then continue on to do your um, practice questions reflecting all of that, right? So 
I want you to know that just because you're out of the game doesn't mean you can't get back in and it doesn't have to be hard. You're not expected to go ahead and do a degree. There is a very small amount of knowledge that you actually need to get back on top of, right? But that is your priority. For those of you who are working or have limited time for other reasons, you have to be especially efficient, right? So for you, you don't have the time to go ahead and I guess, waste time and kind of go around between different resources, you need to come up with a study plan that centers around practice questions and reflection. That's the name of your game. So mock exams being a big thing at this point, they're kind of the full package. Do mock exams or any kind of practice question and reflect on them, right? That's the highest yield thing and will get you the most bang for your buck out of the limited time you have. That's right? so a really focus in, study plan is important for you guys. For science and non-science backgrounds that are unfamiliar or intimidated with either S1 or S3, right? what, is, what are you going to do? So the first thing is a mindset shift. So if you're a science student that thinks S1 is hard and S3 is easy, you need to change that approach. Right? Both are skills-based. And for you science people out there, you need to be worried about bias, right? especially in S3. Make sure you are focusing on skill mindset. For those of you who are non-science or identify as non-science background, you guys may feel intimidated by S3, maybe S1, but especially feel more comfortable in one than the other. I want to extend the same advice to you guys that as a non-science background person, you have to make up a minimal amount of knowledge, right? But that's a very small part of your study. You're not far off the science background people. So you're going to be working on simulating the exam and getting accustomed to how the exam is all skill-based. Don't have to be worried about prior knowledge. You can do it. So mock exams and practice questions will reveal to you that you can do it, right? So for yourself, a mindset shift is really important, and that comes from simulation and a skills-based approach. Now, I'm going to pull out that prone to bias due to previous knowledge even further. So this can be a really hard habit to kick, right? Because You've done science and you're like, I know this, right? I see a cell on my page. I know what I'm doing. For those of you who are prone to bias, you need to actively turn off your science brain. Actively say, nope, not going to use any prior knowledge, only going to take what's from the step. Right? So that needs to be an active part of your strategy. Find ways to turn that off and only bring it in when it's required. So for yourselves, you're looking to identify when it's useful to you. And part of that is, once again, simulation. Do I sound like a broken record? Probably, right? But simulation will work across the board, right? To try and get you guys familiar with the exam and out of bad habits, right? Like being prone to bias. Really important stuff. Now, section two in particular, a big enigma, right? Many students struggle to know how to best respond to the comments and to best make a structure, right? So. We've talked a little bit about this already, but please get a strategy to understand the comments first and foremost. Someone put in the chat, um, take keywords and find a theme, right? Really good. Acer talks about thematic engagement. So that's a really great way to get a starting point. You then need to formulate some ideas and arguments, right? And there are lots of structures for this. So I ask myself, for example, um, you know, what problems are occurring around me related to this theme, 
Um, are they fixable? What do I think about them? What are the solutions? So having questions you ask yourself can be useful. The other thing you have to know is how you're gonna structure compelling paragraphs and make them high quality in under 30 minutes. So when it comes to compelling paragraph structure, the introduction to paragraphs conclusion is a tried and true classic, right? And it's something that really is designed for meaning. So if you guys want somewhere to start with, may have an introduction, two paragraphs and a conclusion as your starting structure. Now to make it high quality in short periods of time, you have to do all of this automatically. So practice, practice, practice. As I said, please write essays, please reflect, and please get others to read them. Really, really important. Uh, and one of the great ways to do that is to get it marked by an expert tutor, right? Who are familiar with the way the ASA marks, right? So who have at least read the marking criteria, right? And learn from them, right? How to produce those high quality essays in short time. So we can give you guys some strategies straight up that have worked for us and other students, right? So having that kind of mentorship can really speed you guys along. Good stuff. Now, mock exams is something that I've talked a lot about, right? Mock exams, mock exams. This, if you do nothing else, is what you should be focusing on. Mock exams. They are a great way for you to understand your strengths and get insight on the areas you need to focus on, right? Weaknesses, reflection, strategies. Mock exam, weakness, reflection, strategies, right? Second up, it helps you understand your level of preparedness, right? Do you have a strategy for S2 or do you still need to work on that? Do you know how to skim a stem or is it taking you too long, right? Are you getting really fatigued through the exam, right? And do you need to find a way to reduce the cognitive load, right? So that kind of physical aspect to the exam can be something really useful out of mock exams. And finally, the results you get will also point you towards the right content, right? So part of getting insight into the areas you need to focus on is then knowing exactly where to study. So doing a mock exam eliminates areas that you don't need that you're already good at, right? That doesn't mean that you can't get better at them, but on a short timeline, we want to target weaknesses, right? So even with an atlas and even with good resources, if you can just skip a particular topic, you save a bunch of time, right? So mock exams, really, really important stuff. Okay. And I think I've just plugged that. Cool. So I've got through that. Let's do a rapid fire question session. Uh, how many mock exams a week are with phrases? We do one, right? Now, you may think one, that's super short. It's really not. One mock exam, it's a whole day, right? Plus reflecting on it, plus getting your S2 essay marked, plus going and studying for the next exam. That is a good week's work, especially if you are um, short on time. I would say maximum two mocks if you do it by yourselves. You don't want to be burning out, and especially you don't want to miss out on all the juicy resources, right, that you can get from a mock. So each time you do one, really bring it out for all its content. Uh, what areas do you recommend reflecting on mocks? So first one is, how did it go? Were you stressed? Uh, were you feeling confident? Did you have more time? Right, so did you finish early and therefore could afford to spend more time per question? 
or are you rushed and maybe you need to look at saving time? So that's the first thing. Second of all, was there a particular section that was really bad for you, right? So was S1 really different to S3, which is an interesting point because they're both skill-based, right? Very similar, actually cousins, if you like. Is there one or the other? Focus on that. Is there a skill that you're bad at? So did you get all the logarithm questions wrong? Things like that. So my advice to you would be get everything you can out of it. Find out what it says about you and then turn that into actionable plans, right? So go study logs, right? Go skim texts, right? Practice doing questions to different timing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, where can you find mock exams to complete? Are there any free resources? Uh, I am not aware of free mock exams in full length and in full quality, what I would call full quality, but Acer gives um, some exams for you to sit that have some questions on it from the website. And of course, we run mock exams as well. So you can also, if you don't have a structured mock exam just given to you, you can get a bunch of practice questions and simulate it yourself, right? I know a lot of people who've done that, get a bunch of practice questions and hold yourself to the right timing, right? Okay, let me hit the q and I'm sorry to everyone who's been posting there. Okay, how do you manage your time for games that study with uni working kids? Uh, it's really hard. I, I'm not going to gloss over that. It's a difficult thing for you to do. I think the most important thing for me is consistency. So I work with a lot of um, healthcare professionals, parents, people who are changing careers. And they often say to me, I don't have the time to study hours in a row like my peers. And I say to them, that doesn't matter, right? It's about consistent effort. I would rather that you did 30 minutes every day then you did three hours one day a week or two days a week because that three hour session is really tiring. There's a lot of burnout. They often don't get used very effectively. So 30 minutes every day, an hour every day, wherever you can, really important. Also what you do in that time needs to be efficient, right? So for you, it's simulation, practice questions, reflection, repeat, right? That's all you have to do at this point in time. Any advice for S1 for someone with science background slash degree? Uh, number one, it's not magic. It's not dark magic, right? It's definitely doable. I can say from experience that I got into S1 as a biomed student and went, this is not me. I can't do this. This is for the humanity grads. It's really not, right? The skills in there, like analyzing information, making conclusions, finding arguments. These are all things we do in a science and academic context, all of us, right? So my advice for S1 is to treat it like a skills-based exam. Apply all the knowledge you've learned from science to a new context, right? That would be my advice for a science background degree person. Uh, okay, let's talk about S1 and S2. So yes, they are next to each other. What will happen is that you'll stop S1 get locked out, logged out, locked out. And then there will be a small transition period where you're um, asked to log in, but don't start the exam. And then everyone gets resettled. And then we go when the invigilator is ready. So it's not like an auto start procedure. There is a gap, but you will still be sitting there and there'll be no time to, I guess, relax or go anywhere. That's what I mean by um, one after the other. 
Uh, what time do you recommend get to the venue? Is it best to take public transport? Uh, great question. So I would recommend getting to the venue early. Of course, so don't show up at the time your exam starts an hour before because it's going to take you a bit to get in the door. If you have an elevator venue, get in the elevator, get your name ticked off, get your exam password and all of these things. So giving yourself an hour at least to get this done, I think is a good idea. Uh, as for public transport, uh, people definitely do. I would say if you're in a city venue, driving yourself is probably the worst option for reliability. I personally was able to get dropped in my final exam, which is really, really nice. Uh, but I would recommend public transport or get someone to drop you, right? Parking is really, really difficult in especially city venues. Uh, what other strategies are there for S2 other than theme finding? Uh, so I could go on and on and on, but for example, a having a plan. So for example, once you have a theme, say the theme is multiculturalism, right? How do you then turn multiculturalism into a two-paragraph essay structure? Well, what you might do is write two topic sentences or make two arguments, right? Write two arguments out. And then from those arguments, elect evidence, right? And then from that, what does your introduction have to contain? So the planning phase before you start writing is a really tried and true strategy. And I will say that one of the things that bothered me the most in my previous sittings was when they would say start S2 and people would start madly typing and you feel like you're left behind. Trust me when I tell you what they're writing is no good, right? It's coming out as a stream of consciousness. It's not planned. It's not structured. They spend a lot of their time rewriting and reformatting. Whereas planners, when they begin to write, they write in a structure and it's, it's better quality in one go, right? So the plan tends to be better to orientate your thoughts. And then post that, get familiar with an essay structure that you want to use. I'm recommending the intro two paragraphs to conclusion. There are some great YouTube videos on what each of those sections should do. I do think from your three weeks at med school that it is still possible to have a part-time job while studying or is the study load too much? Uh, great question. I don't feel comfortable giving you an exact answer. I keep a job, this, right? But it's very, very flexible. I would say that friends of mine have had to give up their job due to inflexibility. So if you're unable to get, I guess, evening and weekend hours, and you aren't able to easily move them around, that can be a real challenge, right? So People definitely do. It depends on your situation and the job you have. Uh, can you write an essay without specific examples? Are general concepts okay? Based on my experience, very hard to do well. It is not outlawed by the examiner. You can write about general concepts. But what tends to happen is that you say things that are not new or interesting. So one of the things that S2 would like to see from you is your ability to cr critically think. Uh, I've been through three two-hour workshops in med school on critical thinking, so I can tell you it comes back. Right? But it, it wants you to think about things critically. It wants to know how you think, what's important to you, and you form an argument. And more broad and general concepts 
give you less leeway to be specific and give those arguments, right? You tend to stay in larger, more nebulous areas and it's hard to do. So I would say um, go more specific with examples. I want you to say right in 30 minutes, how much time do we have for planning? Uh, S2 is 65 minutes overall for two essays. So that averages to about 30 minutes an essay with five minutes of planning overall. So yes, that's the recommendation. You really need 30 minutes to write 500 plus words, which is kind of what we're looking for. So typically five minutes to plan both essays and then 30 minutes each to write them. So I'm conscious of time, guys, so I will try and look for... Uh, how many mock exams did you do and how close should we do them? Uh, at Fraser's, we do six, right? Uh, two bonuses and four official, if you like. Uh, mock exams will only benefit you each time you go through. So what I would say to you is you only have the ability to do a certain number of mocks without burning out. So if you did one mock a week now, you would get through five, right? Before your exam. But we have a bit of, we like to advertise a bit of a health break before your actual exam. So maybe four would be the max, right? At this point in time. Uh, uh, do you think we'd be disadvantaged doing only two body paragraphs instead of three? Uh, no, you would not be disadvantaged. What happens a lot is that when students try and make a third paragraph with no idea of what to put in it, it kind of poisons the communication. So I would rather you planned to write two paragraphs and then found extra time and ideas and wrote a third than to force yourself to write three. In terms of systematic disadvantage, definitely not. If you can explain an idea in two paragraphs, well, you'll get a massive score, right? And with 30 minutes each, two paragraphs is a, quite a few things to write, right? If you're going deep and you're and analyzing and showing your thought process. Really, really important stuff. Okay. Uh, how do you learn specific evidence for S2? Do not go and read books or anything like that. Not important. The best strategy up to this point is pay attention to the news and the world around you and have opinions, right? So if you see something on the news, for example, right, um, the United States retrieved a Chinese weather balloon, right, or whatever it was. That's a world event that people are having conversations about. You need to then go ahead and have opinions on that, right? And current events are, of course, the best because the exam tends to follow um, current events, right? It's not explicitly said, but that's my experience, right? Uh, the best mentality for the day, uh, I guess it's 95% confidence. It's it's a lot, right? So sitting one for me in May, no prep, scared, horrible. Uh, mock, or not mock, exam three, shaky self-prep, but ready for the exam, much better. You have more clarity, you're less tired. I did far better overall with relatively little extra prep. So mindset, uh, I'm gonna smash this. I'm prepared, I'm ready to be a med student. I have skills, positive self-talk, right? Really, really important. Uh, 
Ah, did I get an update on whether there's a recording? No one has gotten back to me, which is super duper annoying. I would say that, I'm not going to promise anything. I'll see if I can get an email sent out. I'll see if I can get an email sent out to all of you guys. But I'm imagining so. I'm imagining so. Uh, uh, I said four mock exams max. Yeah. So I'm thinking about one week to do a mock and get all the reflection out of it. Good, good stuff. Okay. So that's the chat. A couple more questions. I realized that I'm 15 minutes over for you guys if you have to leave. I'm sorry. I keep going. Okay. Do you recommend playing both essays first before writing or playing one of them? Okay. Interesting. So plan, plan, write, write, or plan, write, plan, write. It is, it is strategic. I plan both and then write both. Yes, that's what I do. But I know that some people um, and students I've had say that if they plan one essay and then write it, it stays fresh in their brain. Whereas where they do a double plan, they uh, forget the first essay, right? That comes down to how you feel and also how autonomous your plan is, right? Does your plan actually give you everything you need to forget it and then re-pick it up? Or do you need sorry, that recency. So play with it, try it out. Uh, what do you recommend eating and drinking before S1 and during lunch? Uh, personally, if I have a big lunch, I want to have a nap in, in S3. Uh, but if I have a big breakfast, I feel good for S1. So I have a lot of food prior to the exam, and then I have a little bit at lunch. Once again, something to try, something to try to see what works for you. I attribute my tiredness with a big lunch to a food coma. Okay, now with a little bit of time we have left, let me go onto the ASIC AMSAT website uh, and find out about currency of results. For you guys. If you have no questions, feel free to leave. I'm just going to answer this one uh, for anyone who is interested. So, um, we said September 2021. Uh, do I have a exam from that time? So my results say 2023 and 2024. So yes, it is valid for 2024 entry. You can use September 2021 for 2024 entry. Yes, and it's now changed to uh, four years now. Uh, can scores across, across sittings for different sittings be combined to apply it? No, no. So every exam must be done as a self-contained unit uh, because they are very rigorously scrutinized and built so that they are equal across all of the different exams. So that may make it sound like you should be able to mix them, but the whole exam must come as a package. So you can't mix and match. But in saying that, you don't have to have um, your most recent sitting submitted. So if, for example, you have multiple sittings, you can choose your best as long as it's valid. Right, righty for those who are still here, thank you for sticking back. Sorry, I went a little bit over. All right. 
stuff. Thanks so much for the advice. More than welcome. So that's it from me. I think I've asked everything in the chat. Please yell at me if I haven't. But I hope this was good. Apologies for going over time, but I tried to focus on all of your questions, which I hope was good. Amazing. Thank you, Luke. Have a good night, guys. Uh, and good luck for your exam. <laughs>